Thank you, Suncoast, for your ministry. And may we see many others rise up in a ministry of music that will lift our hearts to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a beautiful Sabbath day, for the hope that's in our hearts, but if it's not there, Lord, the hope you're going to put in our hearts, for your presence with us as we're making the journey. You are the good shepherd. You know us. Help us to know you. And now, Lord, I pray, guide in this uh, time in your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want you to think of a situation in your life out of which you emerged on the other side as a different person. I'm thinking this morning of my wife's journey as a teenager when at summer camp, she discovered she had a lump in her neck. That lump turned out to be Hodgkin's disease, a form of cancer. It rerouted her life she was out of school for a year, finished, had finished Indiana Academy, was anticipating Andrews University, but a journey with a disease put her on a different track. It just so happened that in the midst of that journey, God's healing hand was laid upon her. She and her family rode through that tempestuous time examining what they could do to fight the disease, trust in Jesus, and draw close to each other. And this morning, I'm glad to have my mother and father-in-law here with us, and I want to thank them for all that devoted love and that journey of suffering. It changes you. This morning, I've entitled my message, The Little Book, The Blank Book, and The Final Chapter. I'm going to tell you right from the front side what the main point of the message is, and that is God is going to take you on a journey where you are different on the other side. If you're open to letting God be God, you'll arrive on the other side with a greater peace. And I can remember once when I was visiting a church out west and they sang a song, and the song was, trusting is better than knowing. As a matter of fact, you're better off walking with Jesus in the dark than being able to see the whole way in the light. Christ's presence is the provision you need. All of us are mortal. At some moment in time, we will come to a point in the journey when we realize the last chapter is being written. But what's in the last chapter is predicated. It's built on the chapters that precede it. And so this morning, I want you to know that when children are born, being the father of four, especially when they're born to hearts of kind and caring people, especially Christian people, their hearts are ready for beautiful lessons of faith to be written. And so many of them project the simplicity and the innocency of how God intended them to be. No wonder, Jesus said, unless you humble yourself and become as a little child, you're not going to see the kingdom. Because God never intended to become so smart and so sophisticated and so in control of things that we somehow think we've got to keep our hands on the reins. We've got to hold the steering wheel. In this society, which is information-directed and sometimes information-manipulated, we think that the smartest people are the ones that ought to be charting the course. And there's nothing wrong with intelligence. It's a gift from God. But I want to affirm to you this morning that God defies the wisdom of this world to give us a simple faith, and we're going to need it. 
Because all of the wise things of this world will soon become foolishness, except to those, and especially, you might say, to those who have learned to trust in a thus saith the Lord. But you've got to learn to hear the voice. This is the whole point. When Isaiah writes in Isaiah 30, you'll hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. Everyone repeats the journey of Abraham. There is no exception. God has us on a track where we're learning to discern and in, in faithful eyesight and the hearing of the sensitive ear what God is saying for our lives. He might be saying to you, it's time for you to give this up. It could be a job. It could be a career. It might be a habit. And he's saying, I have something better for you. It's going to set you free. But learning to trust God enough and desire God to make that journey, this is the challenge. This is the point. Take your Bibles and go to the Gospel of Mark. This morning, I want to look at a traumatic experience. Most of us don't sign up for trauma. We avoid trauma. As a matter of fact, it's the work of a leader, be it a mom or a dad or a teacher, a pastor or a business owner, to look to the future and say, what could go wrong? How are we going to avoid it? But there are times when Jesus, as the leader of our lives, looks to the future and he knows something's going to go wrong, but it's to make something right. And on that journey, we have to come to the place where Christ is Lord. Now, I want to talk about the Lordship of Christ for a moment. The Lordship of Christ is over every component of our life or there's no Lordship. In other words, he has perfect permission to take you on a journey to touch you at the physical, the mental, the relational, the occupational, the psychological level, everything. It, it's a journey of how I spend my time and how I give my attention. In an attention economy, are we allowing the devil to write pages of nothingness in the chapters of our life? Or are we allowing God to lead us into chapters of meaningfulness? And by the way, writing a book worth reading takes a whole lot more effort than sitting down and allowing the forces of darkness to give us a novel of some unique and intriguing idea. One kind of book comes out of a true experience. Another book comes out of something that's worthless. And by the way, this morning, I'm not going to Revelation chapter 10 talking about the little book that John ate, but I would like to make you aware of a resource. And we have a, uh, a Daniel 11 conference coming up in October. I want to encourage you to be studying. If you'd like a great addition to your study library, the Andrews University Press has produced for the first time, and, and by the way, Ellen White writes in Testimonies of the Church Volume 8 about this very project. You know, not this very project, but this very product. She writes, I've been instructed that the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation should be printed in small books with the necessary explanations and should be sent all over the world. To my knowledge, this is the first time that's happened. The great prophetic books of Daniel and Revelation, it's a Bible study journal, both books under one cover, waiting for you to pray your way through. This is not my subject this morning, but it is the subject of our collective faith. It is the focus of our hope. Daniel and Revelation, I encourage you, check out Andrews University Press, the books of Daniel and Revelation recorded in one little portion as Ellen White directed they should be. Yes, indeed, God's wanting to write chapter after chapter into our life. I have a quote here from This Day with God. 
She writes, life is not made up of great sacrifices and wonderful achievements. Most of our lives are pretty ordinary. But she says, not great sacrifices and wonderful achievements, but little things, kindness and love, courtesy. These are the marks of the Christian. You need to cherish the precious qualities that existed in the character of Jesus. In our association with each other, let it be ever remembered that there are chapters, now listen, we're talking the metaphor of books here, chapters in the experience of others that are sealed from mortal eyes. In other words, of the, the people that are gathered here today, there are things going on in your life that almost nobody else knows about. But God knows. Praise God, God knows. We have a high priest who's not untouched by our infirmities, but he's in heaven and he ever lives to make intercession. He took all the collective experience of humanity in the intense level of being the God-man and with the focus of hell narrowed in on him like a, a, a laser beam and he experienced in the intensity of his leadership of the human race all of the things at a higher level that we've ever experienced. But there are chapters in my life, in your life, that no mortal eyes are going to know about. There are sad histories that are written in the books of heaven. I want this to get your attention. There are chapters about your life that are written in the book of heaven, in the books of heaven. They are sacredly guarded from prying eyes. Aren't you glad? There stand registered long, hard battles with trying circumstances arising in the very homes that day by day sap the courage and the faith and the confidence until it appears that manhood itself seems ready to fall to ruins. But Jesus knows it all and he never forgets. To such, words of kindness and affection are welcome as the smiles of angels. Now, if you're in a hard experience and in the middle of your darkest hour an angel showed up and he shared a smile with you, it would represent the favor of heaven. But what the writer is telling us is that written in the chapters of your life in a book in heaven are things that only God understands. And while we don't understand them and we don't know them, words of kindness and affection which we can give to each other are like the smile of an angel. A strong, helpful grasp of the hand of a true friend is worth more than gold and silver. It helps him or her to regain the manhood or womanhood of their person, their man or their woman. She wrote that to two doctors in California. Why do I bring it to your attention? Because your life is being chronicled in heaven. Your life, there is a salvation history storybook about you. It's got your name on it. This book here we call the Bible. I want to assure you it's the abridged or what we would say the shortened down version of the story of salvation. I mean, come on, we have 80 years of Moses' life compacted into about three chapters. His life and his battles for right and wrong, against wrong and for right, are written down in a book in heaven. There's a book maybe multiple ones that have your name on it if there's anything worth writing down. Now, of course, we know there's a record of our life and out of that we're going to be judged. But the beauty is, is that Christ allows us to pass from condemnation to life. Can you say amen? 
It's a gift. You can't earn it. There is nothing you could do to make it yours except acknowledge that you need it, receive the Savior who wants to give it, and go for it in the joy that your name is now registered in the book of life. But that's not the only thing that's kept track of in heaven. In heaven, God's keeping track of the salvation history of your life. And I'm here to tell you there are chapters you're forgetting that God isn't. And someday in heaven, when you have a chance to open the book with your guardian angel, he's going to take you from page to page and things you didn't even know happened before you could remember or things that faded with the sharpness of your mind. God is going to be able to say, do you remember this? And you're going to say, I do now. This is a beautiful thing. But what would it be if our lives are full of the superficial, the things that don't matter, or even worse, the things that are destroying our interest in our eternal destiny? We have an adversary of our souls, and his one goal is to take your focus off the beauty of what God wants to give you and the beauty of what God wants to do in you, because when you're used by God, there's nothing quite as thrilling, nothing quite as satisfying. So this morning, before we look in the Gospel of Mark at this amazing story, I need you to ask yourself, is my life completely in the hands of God? Or does that preacher get just a little too close to places I don't want him to go? Or do my parents say some things I don't want to hear? Or does that friend occasionally crowd himself or herself into my life in ways that make me feel just a little bit uncomfortable about my spiritual growth journey? Yes, indeed, it's become vogue in modern Protestantism in America to focus only on what it is that God has for us and not about what we might have to offer God in response to this great gift of salvation. And we've been told this doesn't matter and that doesn't matter and that doesn't matter. Well, let me tell you something. None of those things matter in regard to the gift but they all matter in regard to the ongoing power of God's transforming love to make you ready to be a citizen of heaven. And as a matter of fact, our uniqueness as Christians, as the beauty of Christ shines through, these beautiful smiles of angels that we can give to each other, these are things. I don't know how many of you saw the interview with our new North American Division president, uh, Alex Bryant, but he had a beautiful, beautiful phrase in his interview. They were asking him about his journey to Christ. He was now raised as a Seventh-day Adventist. Let's start praying for him. But he said, I fell in love with the people before I fell in love with the message. Now listen, the message is beautiful, but if it doesn't make beautiful people, I'm not sure how good the message is. God's calling us into the fact that he could be Lord of our lives where there is no shadow of sin hanging over us, where there's a freedom to be open for Jesus and to not be embarrassed about him. And there is a walking sense of the blessed freedom in Christ by the fact that Christ has broken the chains of the things that were holding me back. The problem is, in the name of the church today, we've decided that certain chains can be worn and they're the new liberty, but they're not. Take your Bibles and open them up to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 4. This story is told by Matthew in chapter 8. It's told by Luke in chapter 8, but it's told best, in my opinion, by Mark in chapter 4. Mark appears to be the only one that locates the story in the context of the fuller day. Jesus has been ministering. He's by the Sea of Galilee. He's on the western shore, which is the Jewish part. 
He's going to make a journey over to the eastern shore, which is the pagan part. But he has had quite a day. The Bible doesn't tell us whether or not he's been up all night, but we do know this. When the day ends, he is so exhausted that the disciples have to help him into the boat. It's parables about this and stories about that. Mark chapter 4, beginning with verse 38. On that day, when the evening came, he said to them, let's go over to the other side. Now, Jesus had a purpose in going to the other side. One purpose was rest. Christ never intended that you work nonstop and don't have the rhythms of refreshment and know that your life has a blessed dignity in doing what the animals can't do, reflecting on your purpose, reflecting on your place in the universe, reflecting on the priority of what God paid to make you his again. Jesus wasn't going to work nonstop, and he was in such a moment and such a place in time that he needed a break. The other thing you need to know about this story is that on the other side of the sea was a man so controlled by demons that he needed the deliverance of Jesus in the flesh. When he would speak, he couldn't even say the own words he wanted to say. The disciples probably thought, why bother going over there? That's nowhere we want to go. But Christ was Lord, and because he was Lord, they went. And the boat started on a journey that was serene, on a lake that was placid. We might call it a journey of a beautiful sunset, and yet it was going to turn into something completely different. Let us go to the other side. I want to ask you, friends, you're listening today. For some reason, God brought you. I didn't call one of you up and invite you to be here. I don't know who's watching online, but I never got on the internet and invited anybody to be here. So that means by God's appointment, you're here listening today. What's the point? Are we supposed to masquerade our way through this life as the salt of a society that's, that's lost its flavor and is actually melting down and, and savoring of the rot that comes from the inner person to the outer society, comes from the home into the society? Is God Lord of all things? If he called you here today, did he call you to make any decisions to leave from here and go to there, to stop doing this and start doing that, to start doing this and stop doing that? Indeed, you're here by God's appointment this morning because God is calling you on a journey and on the way he wants to show himself beautiful, strong, and present. So leaving the crowd, there's one of the points, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was, and there were other boats with him. Well, we know what Jesus did. The next verse makes it very clear. Jesus found himself laying down in the boat. As a matter of fact, Jesus couldn't hardly let his head hit the cushion until he was gone. No big deal. It's a beautiful Galilean evening. They're moving across the lake with the gentle breezes of the evening. The sun is setting. But then this terrible thing happens. Out of those gorges, uh, those ravines on the east side of the Jordan comes this rapidly developing howling wind. And the Bible in Mark 4 describes the sea as a seismos. In other words, it's as if from down underneath, the waves are being churned up, and it's not long until those calloused hands and those strong forearms and shoulders of the fishermen are saying, it's not going to work this time. We're not going to get to the other shore. And that's when they start calling out for Jesus. It's a fierce gale of wind, it says in verse 37. The waves are breaking over the side of the boat. 
and it's starting to fill up and they can't bail as fast as it's coming in and Jesus is unconcerned, it appears, asleep in the back of the boat. Now, the verbiage in Mark is different than the verbiage recorded in Luke and Matthew. Can you imagine? If I was Matthew, the tax collector, and I was in the boat and they said, row harder, I'd row harder. If I was Nathaniel and I was in the boat and they said, row differently, I'd row differently. Both of these men are not fishermen. But if I was Matthew, and all of a sudden, during a flash of light, I looked into the eyes of Peter, James, or John, who were all fishermen, and I saw terror on their face, I would be more afraid than they were. If you're ever with somebody who knows what they're doing, and you take confidence that they know what they're doing, and then you notice that they know what they're doing, but they don't know what's going on, all of your confidence flees away and you are more afraid than you were before. And there came a moment in the struggle with the elements when the men who had fought and won before realized they're not going to win tonight. And they say, Jesus, Jesus, where's Jesus? And finally, after all hope is gone, during one of those bolts of lightning, they turn around and they see Jesus asleep on a cushion. This is the only place this story told in Luke, Mark, and Matthew that ever tells us that Jesus slept. He was the consummate worker, which is why he needed to sleep now. I wonder, friends, if we had a little more of that commitment to the kingdom of God, if we might find ourselves with the relational people, spiritual fatigue that Jesus found himself with. It wasn't from fishing all day or digging ditches or working in the fields. It was a fatigue of person from the battles that were going on in the effort to win souls to his Father. God sometimes is calling us in ways we don't want to go, to places we don't want to be. But unless we make the journey, the chapters of our book will be written with refusal to obey. I can remember Barry Black, the chaplain of the United States Senate, preaching once at the Indiana Academy camp meeting. Of course, making a career of the military, following God's lead to minister in the ranks of our armed servicemen is an important thing. And he made a statement that still sticks in my mind. This sermon's over 20 years old, so it must have made a riveting point. But he said, in the armed forces, the delay of obedience to an order is disobedience. How many of us have been sitting at the master's table, feasting as it were, Sabbath by Sabbath, receiving blessings, and yet God is saying, I want you to go from there to there. I'm going to go with you. I think a lot of us are afraid that somewhere on the journey, some storm's going to break out in our lives, and it isn't going to turn out very well. There's Jesus asleep. And so they woke him, and this is what they said to him. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care? Now listen, they've already passed through the realms of fear. It appears that their death warrant is being signed by the wind and the waves. 
The boat is no longer much of a sanctuary. It's going to become a, a, a statue on the bottom of the lake. And they've come to a place where they can actually accuse Jesus of perhaps the most heinous of all sins. To have no interest in them, only interest in his own needs. Don't you care? Don't you care? You know what the word myopic means? You know, up close. You can only see what's up close. Can you imagine the angels watching this little tempest-tossed boat? Can you imagine the angels listening? Can you imagine, I mean, somebody, uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is there, and, and somehow these words get recorded a little later on. Can you imagine their, their amazement? Number one, that they're afraid because this God-ordained messenger of heaven who is the commander of the Lord's host, who is God himself, is in the boat. He hasn't achieved his goals. Don't be afraid. Don't be worried. Of course, we can't see all that because we've got the same myopic problem too. Oh, this hurts. Oh, this is scary. Oh, this is bothering me. Oh, this is making me insecure. And the other thing, to accuse Jesus, who left the palaces of light, the resplendent beauty of his riches, the constant praise of the angels, and come down here where he's tired and hungry, scorned, where he's chased down by adversaries, mocked by the leading institutions, rejected by the people of importance in his own family. And they're asking him if he doesn't have any interest in them, if he doesn't care. Jesus does not answer their question. And there are times when you, like Nehemiah, when he was accused of treason to the government of Persia, didn't bother to answer the questions. There are times when we ought not to bother to respond, and that by itself is a form of rebuke. But it says in verse 39, he got up, he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, peace, be still. And there were twinkling lights in the night sky, and it was as placid as when they began. And he said to them, why are you afraid? How is it that you still have no faith? How many chapters had been written prior to this moment? Pretty exciting to see Jesus touch a leper in Matthew 8. I do want to heal you. Pretty exciting to watch the lame jump up and dance for joy. Pretty exciting to hear the dumb talking and praising God. Pretty exciting to see people eating miracle food coming, as it were, from spontaneous creation in the hands of Christ. Pretty exciting to watch all this going on. But Jesus is not yet, in the minds of these men, master of the cosmos. He's not yet the one who spoke the world into existence. He's a step up from everybody else. And yes, he's talked about his role. And at some moment, they've given lip service to it, but in this moment, they stand there stunned, and they say, what 
manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? I want you to know something, friends. The winds and the waves, as the song says, still obey him. But do we believe enough to get into the boat and make the journey with him as the captain of our salvation? Is it going to be our way? We don't want anybody intruding into our life. Don't anybody dare in this 21st century postmodern culture lay a conviction on me. Don't anybody crowd into my self-made circle of convenience and comfort. Give me room. Nobody has a right to suggest to me I'm going the wrong way or living for myself or what I'm doing is clouding and covering up the beams of righteousness that Christ wants to flow out. I don't want to look like the old church. I like the new church better. The only problem is the new church appears to have less and less of the power with each passing generation. Maybe as Jeremiah said, it's time for us to ask for the old past and walk in them. Do you believe this story happened? Do you believe Jesus cares? Are you willing to go where he leads? They were astonished he was asleep. And they were astonished that he didn't seem to care. Our scripture reading this morning said, God never slumbers or sleeps. But you know in your life there have been moments when like the disciples, you've cried out to God and there was no answer. So welcome to the world of the waiting Christian. Does it mean Jesus left you, swam to shore, took a reprieve from his interest in your journey from death to life, from disbelief to belief? Is it maybe possible that for faith, for new chapters of faith to be written, there must actually be moments when you have to wait a little while and believe deliverance will come? Is there required in writing a chapter of faith? I mean, for the fabric of faith to grow, doesn't there have to be a moment when things don't look right before they are right? And maybe sometimes they never turn out the way we think they're right, but before it's all said and done, the captain of our salvation has spoken more peace to our souls than ever in our life, even as it appears that the boat is going down. Books. The little book. Every child has a little book. I'm assuming that most listening to me today had some dedicated mother or father who tried to write chapters of love, faith, simplicity, sincerity, and hope into the life of their child. But somewhere along the way, you've got to ask Jesus to take the stylus, the pencil, the pen, and start writing too. And there are many people baptized as 10 and 11-year-olds that truly love Jesus, but by the time they're 21, Jesus is in the way. They might spend the next 20 years finding out that Jesus is the way. He's still there. He's waiting. I can still remember the words of a friend of mine who was raised at least with an attempt to be Christian, and it wasn't until he was in his middle 40s, and he said, I've wasted so much of my life. Praise God, he can restore what the locusts have eaten. Can you say amen? Listen, friends, it's time to close the book on the worthless, empty chapters. Now, let's talk about books for a minute. I brought some of the best books out of my library this morning. Let's start with a little book, Martin Luther's Little Instruction Book. 
I love to keep these little books around just for a quick little word. If a man could make a single rose, Martin Luther speaking, an empire should be given to him. But because of their commonness, the innumerable gifts of God are not appreciated. Let's do another one. These two sins, hatred and pride, deck and trim themselves out as the devil clothed himself in the Godhead. Hatred will be godlike, and pride will be truth. That one takes a little thinking about. Here's a good one. The more a person loves, the closer he approaches the image of God. But that's a little book. I could read that in 30 minutes or less. Little books have a place. Little books are good for little people. Sometimes big books with big words, but short messages. As a matter of fact, I'd like to talk about children for a minute. <laughs> my favorite books, I have three of my favorite books here, and they're all junior devotionals. And if you had these for your grandchildren or your own children, they would be rich in potential opportunity to grow faith. This one's entitled, With God You Win, by Robert L. Osmondson, a junior devotional, fantastic. The next one is entitled, Stepping Stones, by Dorothy Eaton Watts. This book's about 30 years old, but I want to tell you the stories of great men, godly women, are recorded in this book, Christian people. And the best of all of the devotionals, the junior devotionals ever written, is Eric B.'s Hare's Make God First. Friends, if you don't have those books, you're missing out on a faith journey. And then, of course, there's some other good books for kids. This one here, I Changed God's Amazing Story of Escape During the Second World War and a Journey into Faith in God. You need to go to all those bookshelves where the old books are and buy them up and read them. But my favorite of all times, the story of Nipa, who hated the missionaries, but eventually he was taught by a what? A tiger. You need to read it. It's been reprinted. I've got some good books. The oldest book is one given to me by my grandmother in 1974 when I was 10 years old. It's a little child's Bible. And you know, it, it may be the very first Bible I ever read through. King James Version, certainly written for a child because the letters are so small that it would be very hard for me to read them now. Then let's touch on probably one of the best secular books I've ever read. You say, Pastor, why bring that up in a sermon? Because some secular writers are discovering through data the principles of godliness. And this is one of those books by Jim Collins called Good to Great. He has five principles. I would say at least two or three of them are nothing but direct reflections of the spirit of Christ in the leaders of organizations. And of course those organizations are going to excel. And now we're getting down to the last three or four. The very first book used to win me to Christ was an old book published by Southern Press called God's Minutes. I've talked about it before. I'll talk about it again as long as I'm your pastor. It's an amazing devotional journey, which is the first devotional book I ever listened to sitting in the seventh grade in Peoria Junior Academy. This book is worth getting. It's worth reading. It describes great attributes of character and the great love of Jesus, and I still use stories out of it. And then let's come down to two other books. This is a cheap speaker source book. 
which is a preacher, especially a young preacher, needs a good source book because he doesn't have much in life yet to source from. And so young preachers need to collect these a lot. Old preachers don't use them as much. But this book, amidst probably the dozen or two that I have of quote books, etc., is my favorite, even though it's probably the cheapest. And then the biggest book I have here today is an encyclopedia of 15,000 illustrations that has 3,700 pages in it. And I almost never read it, probably because it's so big. I don't know. But the book I really want to focus on that's the most important book is this one. Now, what makes this book so unique? Have a look. It doesn't have a great title. I've written on the binding Reflections, Theology and Philosophy. As a matter of fact, if I open this book up, and I have several of them at home, you're going to see that it's a blank book. Why would that have any value to any of us? Because it's not blank everywhere. As a matter of fact, if I go back to the front of it, since this one is one where I have certain subjects, I have a little entry here from 2012 about conflict and intimacy. It says, if you don't strain the relationship, you will never strengthen the relationship. It's like a muscle. See, this is a journal. These are my most precious books outside of the Bible. I've had chapters in my life just in the last 35 years of marriage and parenting and pastoring I don't even remember. And sometimes I'll sit down with my journal. Hey, get off Facebook and start writing your own book. Be on Facebook enough to be a witness. But don't live out somebody else's story. Write out your own so that someday your kids have a chance to look at it and say, that happened to mom, that happened to dad. And by the way, these are my private books. I don't care if my wife reads them, but nobody else. But this book is the most amazing book, along with several others that I have. And fortunately, I started keeping a journal of sorts when I had the time back when I was a student at Andrews University. Here's a good one I put in here by C.S. Lewis, The Road to the Promised Land. Listen to this, all you Seventh-day Adventists, and especially listen to all you non-Seventh-day Adventists. The Road to the Promised Land leads past Mount Sinai. I want you to think about it. Now, I believe that when we get to heaven, these chapters written in these books that Ellen White wrote about to these two physicians in St. Helena, California, I believe that in the New Jerusalem, the main institution, aside from the fact that the city itself is a temple, I believe that the main institution in the New Jerusalem is the university of the New Jerusalem. And I believe that the main building on the university of the New Jerusalem is the Jesus Christ Library of Salvation. And I believe that in that library, all the chapters of our life are written in books. And for some, because their lives have been so full of encountering God, explaining God, witnessing and living for God, my guess is there's probably many volumes for some. Unfortunately, for some, there's no book at all. But I do believe that on the shelves, on the stacks, of the Jesus Christ Library of Salvation in the center of the campus of the University of New Jerusalem is all the storyline of the salvation of Christ working out our salvation. He who began the good work finishes the good work. There's the first chapter, a second, third, fourth, and I don't know how many chapters, but I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, all the chapters of my life, some of which I've forgotten where Christ was at work, my guardian angel is going to say, Ron, let's go down to the library 
and let's look at a book. And he's going to walk into a segment. Now, there are no books in the James White Library that have my name on the spine. None. But in the University of the New Jerusalem, by God's grace, I want there to be several. The life of Ronald P. Kelly, Jr., Jesus Christ will have overseen the writing of it. I don't know if my guardian angel was the actual penman, but we're going to open the book up, and he's going to take me on an amazing journey. If I get to live 70, 80, or 90 years, I don't know, but I do know this. It'll be an amazing experience. And you know what? If I want to read about your life, I'll get the sanctified, edited, proper version for me to read. And some of the chapters I'm not supposed to know about you here, I'll know about there, and it'll be okay, because it'll be nothing but a glorious testimony to where God took you, to where you are in the presence of Christ. But I need to tell you something. The Lordship of Christ in all is so supremely important in the now. I had a great visit yesterday with one of the District 9 pastors here, Bryce Bowman. And I'm going to encourage you today, when you go home, get online and look up his sermon from today and watch it. I haven't heard it. I've only heard parts of it. But the nutshell of what, well, I don't know if the nutshell, but I know what he told me. It was an interesting perspective on society back in the 1990s. And I had another member of this church talk with me along similar lines, which I hope was an encouragement to him. It was an encouragement to me. Back in the 1990s, so much of our effort was focused from a religious liberty standpoint on the religious right. We were afraid that the church was getting pretty cozy with the, the government and that the religious right was affecting our society and it would be the, the, the arena, the avenue of persecution for God's people when Sunday laws came and liberty was lost. But you know something? It appears that the sectoral, liberal, atheistic left has made an end run on our culture in the last 20-some years. And it appears that it's yanked the, the rug out from underneath our Judeo-Christian values. And the only value now is to be nice enough not to say anything bad about the godless values that some people hold and the way they're impacting homes and thus culture. And it was interesting because in, in the last five years, we've watched the commandments, like the seventh commandment that, that directs about adultery and the story out of Genesis that defines the marriage. We've watched those knocked down. And I had somebody this week send me an article about a Massachusetts community that has embraced polyamory, which means be married to as many people as you want to be married to. So, if we've watched the institution of marriage fall, it's got run over by the bus of common culture. And if we sense in this moment any, any pressing on our, our rights, our liberties, if, if we don't sense that the very culture of Christ has been evaporating rapidly from, from the scene, it really only leaves a little minimal road bump, it appears, between us and the final crisis. Come on, pastor, say it a different way. I'm going to do it. There were two things given in the Garden of Eden. Before there were any Ten Commandments written down, one was marriage and one was the Sabbath. 
The Sabbath has not yet fallen. It's not yet been attacked. But marriage has fallen in the streets. Morality, by way of relationships, has largely been jettisoned. Now there's one more thing that stands in the way before Satan can wreak havoc on God's people, and that is the principles of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence that put a firewall between us and our religious liberties and freedoms and rights. But in this COVID moment, there's some pretty serious pushing on the dynamics of what religious liberty and liberty of person means. And what we're seeing is, is that for the sake of security, that rugged backbone of spirit, that rugged sinew of proper individualism inside these united states, but when the Constitution itself means so little to so many, there'll only be one thing left, and that will be the Sabbath. So what's my point? The final chapter will soon be written in earth's history. But if there are no chapters in our lives of faith that precede the final chapter, if Jesus can't say to us, go and we go, if Jesus can't say to us, do and we do, don't and we don't, if there is no lordship that leads us on a road of obedience that calls us out into the faith experience and grows our faith, if we have no chapters written in the book of faith, if Christ's lordship is only for when I need a get-out-of-jail-free card so it looks more like saviorship than lordship, the last chapter is going to be a very difficult one to experience or have written. So what kind of chapters are you letting God write with your life? What kind of commitments have you made? Can Jesus be Lord of everything? If so, anticipate a few tempestuous rides. But when they got out on the sand of the eastern seashore, they knew Jesus differently than they knew him before the road, before the journey started. With Jesus in the vessel, you can smile at the storm. Christ himself wants to write the chapters. He won't stretch you more than you can be stretched. He won't stretch you in perpetuity. He won't hold you in the refining fire longer than you should be held. He's not out to consume you. He's out to change you. Will you let him? Maybe this afternoon I'll get one of my books out and remind myself of how faithful he's been. I'm going to end with this. For a minister, the 21st century requires a different kind of dependence on God than ever before. At almost every step, there are more risks than there have ever been before. 
So from the very second month I was in this church seven years ago, back when it was not very pretty to be nice about it. Many of you sitting here today don't remember what that was. I was standing back here behind this wall listening to Dr. Tom Wilson make an appeal. And little could he know that his challenge to us to do something about the house of the Lord and its disrepair was exactly what God had put on my heart to preach about that morning. Now, none of my preaching professors would be recommending that within the second month of arriving, we're talking about how ugly this church is. But when God says you go from here to there, he gave me just enough encouragement, kind of like Gideon sneaking down to the Midians, and he hears that Midianite saying, yeah, I saw a loaf of bread tumble into the camp and knock down a tent. Ellen White says Gideon heard in that the affirmation that he was in God's will. So I'm standing back there behind this wall, and I'm listening to somebody go ahead of me. just happens to be the head elder of this church. And I want to assure you, every single thing that we've done here has been fraught with the potential for failure except for one thing, with Jesus in the vessel. You can smile at the storm. I'm here to tell you today, you don't need to be afraid of the future. You just need to be in Christ. Because I'd rather walk with Jesus in the darkness than walk without him in the light. And I want to tell you, darkness is coming upon the world, gross darkness. But God is going to take his people through. Where's the next chapter for you? Where is it for me? You don't have enough money to put your kids in church school? Says who? Says the pocketbook. God says, I want them there anyway. You don't have enough money to return tithe? Says who? You don't have enough time to be at the prayer meeting? Says who? You don't have enough time to read your Bible day by day? Says who? You can't break that addiction that you've got? Says who? Jesus says, peace, be still, amen.